You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you that you want to listen on to find out what he has to say about the psychology of auctions and how everything is deliberate. This is getting into the psyche of the buyer and, and talking about language and the skill set as the auctioneer to use certain dialogue to ensure that they, um, that they are committed to the property. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp, and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we pick the brains of Tim Heaviside, who just happens to be the auctioneer who was featured in our very first episode. So if you haven't listened to it, guys, go back there because then you'll know what we're talking about. For those of you who haven't listened to that episode, we interviewed behavioural scientist Simon Russell after he went to one of Tim's auctions and he gave us a blow-by-blow analysis of the ways in which an auctioneer and the auction process itself works to influence bidders. Tim is a director owner of Fletcher's, which is an agency with 19 offices in and around Melbourne, plus one in Wollongong. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> How did that come about? Uh, we just saw an opportunity there was the right people. There you go. Okay. He's a licensed real estate agent and a sought-after auctioneer, apparently with a manner that entertains the crowd, which Simon can attest to. He's won several awards, including Rate My Agents Australian and Victorian Agent of the Year for the past two years, as well as being the number one Fletcher's property consultant every year for the last 12 years. Actually, 14 now. I've got to update that. 14. Isn't it time you gave someone else a go? Yeah, that's it. That's what my mother-in-law said. Aren't you sick of winning things? (laughs) Oh, God. Tim is Fletcher's main in-house trainer and is a sought-after speaker at external industry functions where he passionately shares his award-winning sales technique with others and we're very keen to specifically learn how he uses these techniques to influence buyers. Thank you very much for joining us, Tim. Thanks, Veronica. It's a pleasure to be on the show. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Really appreciate you giving us some time. Thanks, Chris. Um, yeah, it was very interesting when we first chatted to Simon. Uh, you know, he's a good friend and, you know, we're talking, he was, he was just, he was trying to do some research and then actually went to one of your auctions and um, he was completely blown away. Like if you actually was, Simon was in this room, he would, you know, go through how, amazed he was. Now, how did all that come about? In terms of being a great auctioneer, is it obviously it's about influencing people, but was this a lot of training that you've had over the years? And can you kind of give a bit of an example of how that all came together? I think auctioneering is like leadership in some respects. Sometimes you're born a great leader. Sometimes you actually can be trained to be a great leader. I certainly wasn't born a great auctioneer. <laughs> and I'm not saying I'm t- testifying I'm the best auctioneer in the world either. A lot of my um, credentials or recognition have been around being a top, top real estate agent, not necessarily being the best auctioneer. But I do have a bit of a, a cult following in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne where people will come around and get a free coffee from me. When I do have a free coffee van and so they'll, well, they'll come was, around. Well, that's the, interesting. <laughs> that was the very first thing that Simon mentioned and there's a word for it, the reciprocity effect. That's it. And so you're completely conscious of this, obviously, you, the way that you're yeah. reacting. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, I, well, I have a bigger belief system other than, than that, which is if you've come along with an absolute appetite to help people, so that's 
that's where you're um, wanting to do, like you're wanting to help people, people know, they pick up on it. So a part of the coffee van, and it's not just coffee, we do tea, coffee, hot chocolate. In the summertime, we do Slurpees and we do water and everything. So it's just to make people feel really comfortable. It's not so I'm going to give you something, so I want something from you. It's really, um, it's coming along from the, the belief structure that I just want people to feel comfortable in the environment that they're in. And it's, it's a bit of a show. Mm. But it does actually have an impact on people. So while, while you know, you've got a good, great intention helping people, you know, and you, you're giving them a coffee and that's all great, um, subconsciously they're actually, that is actually affecting them. You know? And they're going like it's putting them in the right frame of mind mm. and then they want to do something back for you. So even though it's a $4 coffee or $3 coffee, mm. they're subconsciously, they're prepping them to, you know, I guess be more inclined to want to kind of give you a favour back. And it doesn't have to be equal. So, you know, they, you give them a $4 coffee, they haven't got to buy you a $4 coffee. They just want to do something and that might be bidding at auction. So it's interesting. Rather than the actual purchaser or an underbidder that might bid at the auction, there's a lot, there are a number of people at the auction. So there are neighbours, there are friends and family of the vendor, there are friends and family of buyers that are there. So what all this testifies is goodwill. So your brand and reputation as an agent, as an auctioneer, as a, as a person serving the community in real estate, it's out there. So mm. it's just another level. Mm. And how and how do you like to prep the crowd for the, you know, before the auction? What are some of the things you do to kind of set the scene for the? Um... So there's a few things. So going back prior to the auction, as an agent, I really want to prepare my buyers to engage and bid. So seventy percent of my auctions, I get live bidding if there's a buyer there to buy it. So if there's a person that wants to buy the property, 70% of the time, they'll bid at my auction. And how that happens is that I have a good talk to them during the sales campaign, but more particularly on the Friday prior to the auction, I really get in their head and I'll have a, a conversation or a meeting with a buyer to prepare them where the first book bid will be, what the increments that I'll be asking for. And then I ask very good questions about so if it was, say, around that million-dollar mark, would you still be in it? And then I get a reaction from the buyer, and that tells me where I might start the auction. So a buyer then with that question posed, so if it was around a million dollars, would you still be in it? They might go, a million dollars? You're crazy. <laughs> so that means they're yeah. not there. <laughs> but they might go, yeah, million dollars, feel comfortable. So, okay, so what, what happens if got up to say 1.1 or 1.2 are you still okay there oh 1.1 okay but not 1.2 and so you, you get a bit of a, a gauge from the buyer so that might tell me uh, in terms of certain buyers as well to provide advice to my client to the vendor that hey it might be the best system or the best mo is for us to pass it in and negotiate if we don't have competition beyond say that one million dollar mark and this is the best buyer it's a standout buyer that'll pay potentially 1.1 million through negotiation might be the best call is to pass it in and negotiate with a certain buyer. All those things factor in. And so, um, so you're having these calls, you're calling them up Friday at some point yes. and you're doing that to every single person who's got a contract, I assume, uh, yeah. anyone potentially showing any interest. Um, and then you're having the same conversation. What you're trying to do is figure out where they're at. Yeah. Price point. yeah. So we've, we've done the work during the campaign, which sets the auction up appropriately. Um, and quite often I get that feedback, gee, I always see bidding at your auctions. Yeah, but we've got the property promoted correctly 
and we've got the buyers in the right frame of mind that they're not coming to the auction having having been cold, cold mm. yeah, and their arms are folded, their body language is negative to the fact that they're going to engage. And the best auctions are those that when you've got momentum and that happens when mm. you've actually prepared the, the buyer appropriately. So a lot of the, the work right. is done prior to the Saturday to make the actual Saturday auction work. And also you're a sales agent who's an auctioneer, so that's a yeah. very different scenario than, than the sales agent who's paid, you know, for a, a different auctioneer to come along. So then you're sort of handing over the baton to those people. So that's that's quite a subtle difference. Well, it's actually not that subtle. It's a quite, quite a distinct difference. I use it in listing presentations mm. all the time, Veronica, that I'm not only your, your agent but I'm also a quality auctioneer, so mm. you'll get the best of both worlds. So when I go out to form an auction, I'm not looking at a crowd of, say, 30, 40, 50, 80 people. I'm looking at specifically three or four buyers yeah. Yeah. and I'm looking at the whites of their eyes mm. and they're looking at me and sometimes I might even reference out names because we've got a relationship. Yeah. And ultimately it's, it's to get the best outcome for the vendor, for the client, the owner. But still, to get that, to make that happen, you've got to get bidding from the buyer. Mm. So when you ask for an opening start, there's no awkwardness and then you get a start and then you're away. And if you don't get that start, what happens is there's, it's awkward, there's pause, there's breaking momentum, you're nearly begging for the first start, the auctioneer's starting on a vendor bid, and all power goes to the buyers, not to the owner, not to the agent, not to the auctioneer. Mm, interesting, isn't it? Because also in Victoria, buyers don't need to register. No. So, I mean, I know in New South Wales and, and Brisbane, uh, sorry, in Queensland, I think even in Adelaide, you've got to register, which means, you know, the agent can go up to the auctioneer and go, well, that person, that person, that person, that person is registered. And obviously a good agent will have had those same conversations that you have. Um, but, yeah, in Victoria you don't have that that benefit. Yeah. He's turned up ready to buy. Don't know. Mm. And are you trying to change your style now? Because obviously, you know, 2018 is different to 17, 16, 15 mm. is different. How are you changing your auctioneer style now with people probably more happy to sit on their hands rather than before? I'm freaking out. I'm, I'm going to miss out. I've just got to get a bid in. Um, yeah, I have, um, and I've evolved over time. So, again, to my point I raised earlier about good leaders are either born good leaders or they are actually can be taught to be good leaders. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing about auctioneering. My first auction was terrible, Chris. Mm-hmm. So, Veronica, what happened? Um, this is going back to the year 2007. Mm-hmm. So I've literally now called well over 2,000 auctions, certainly not to the volume of Damien Cooley. Mm. I mean, that guy's just a machine because that's all he does is yeah, auctions. Absolutely. But he's brilliant at it. Yeah. When I first started, I um, went in the REIV novice auctioneer competition, got through my heats and I made the final yep. and got bombed out of the final. There's a fantastic commercial auctioneer who won the whole thing and he deserved to win. Um, then I thought, okay, from there I'll, I'll go out and I was, I was a fairly good agent. May I just try my hand now at auctioneering? The first auction I ever called uh, was a property in North Bourne. The vendor was blind. Perfect. That's great. She won't see how bad I am maybe <laughs> potentially. So I hear you. There was all these. There was all these. Yeah, that's right. You know, I didn't factor Probably that in. for death. <laughs> so so um, I, I, uh, it was a home that would been vacant for 32 years. So you've got to appreciate when a home's not lived in for a period of that extent, mm. what happens? Water eventually gets oh, in. The ceiling was starting to cave down. The part was terrible. It was really a knockdown and, and rebuild. Um, she was, had a lot of money and she owned a lot of property. So what happened, five minutes before, um, I, I started to panic. I had this cold feeling come up and down my spine, like, what am I going to say about this home? 
I remember saying to my colleague, what am I going to say? And he goes, I'll talk about the opportunity, the location, uh, you know, the potential of the home. Okay. Now, now at that auction, I had all my family. I had uh, potential vendors at the auction. I had a lot of the Fletcher's people. It's packed. And I got heckled on my first auction. There was yep. awkward silences and um, it, it was just terrible. But the real reality for me sunk in on the Monday after the auction. I passed in and negotiated and sold it. And on the Monday, I had this really good client, a Chinese lady by the name of Betty. And anyway, Betty, you know, I sold for previously and Betty came to this auction. Anyway, I, I knocked on the door on Monday night. Betty, Betty answered the door. She let me in and we're walking down the hallway. I'm going to list Betty's house. And Betty said, stopped me in the hallway and said, now, Tim, I just want to let you know we are still going to go with you, but we changed our mind. We don't want auction. We want private sale. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I was oh, gutted. I was like shattered. Anyway, so years, I put in a lot of, I got, I put in a lot of training. Yeah. Mm. So I got, I had several auctioneer coaches. So Tonya Davidson, mm-hmm. um, I had uh, Chris Helder, and my current coach at the moment is Phil DeFagler, who still is an auctioneer coach. Right. And so I've got a coach right now. Mm. And some of the, the world's best, a- best athletes, they've got coaches. Absolutely. Tennis yeah. players, yeah. runners, whoever. They've got mm. coach. I've got a coach. And so what are they coaching you on now, right? Because it's not about how to do it or how to – Is it what? So you, as you get better, you coaching gets better. Mm. Are you focusing a lot around behavioural science and behavioural science you know, and NLP and all yeah. these sort of things? So it, your, your point exactly, Chris. So what I do now, I get into the, to the psyche of – who the buyer is. So I'll give you some really good examples of that. I've got an auction. I've got five auctions last, last weekend. I've got four auctions tomorrow. So the auctions that I'm calling tomorrow, I already know, like I'll pick, pick one property that I'm auctioning tomorrow. And I already know I've got one investor on that property. So when I'm, when I'm talking, particularly in the bidding sequence, I'm talking how much of a great investment this is. And, particularly and targeted to that and, investor. So you know that what the goals of that investor is. Exactly. So I can get into the head of the buyer, and this is my goal, make it feel logical that they're making sense, they feel comfortable to engage and to continue to bid, rather than just pitching it out to willy-nilly anywhere. Mm. I'm really getting into the mindset of the buyer and making them feel comfortable. Hey, this process is right for me. I'm, I'm, I'm Punching yeah. those, I'm hitting those buttons that say, hey, yes, I should bid and continue to bid. And it's a good idea. And it's training the monkey brain, isn't it? It's, 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 it's calming down the freaked out part of our brains to say, no, nah, it's a good idea. It's a good idea. Okay. Yeah. So it's very conscious. We suspected that a lot of your behavior and a lot of your techniques are very consciously executed. So this is great. This is actually going even at a deeper level, really. But are you behavioral, like, like, so for example, their nationality or their personality, so if they're extrovert or the introvert or they're... You know, are you NLP. Com- and you're you're thinking about that. So A, it's an investor, but B, it's probably more of a introvert. They're a bit nervous. They're a bit, and so I need to change the way my tone is. I'm mm. not as loud. I'm a bit more soft. You know, are you doing that? It's light and shade, absolutely, Chris. Mm. And with with NLP training, which I've done extensively, neuro linguistic programming. For any of those listeners who haven't heard of that before, been around for a long time. Yeah, it has a yeah. lot of. Books and videos. So um there are also opportunities where you've got to allow the buyer to process. So there's a bit of there is deliberate pausing. And sometimes mm. the, the best moment of an auction is just to pause and give that buyer an opportunity to reflect or you can read their body language or situation or and whether or not they are more process driven or they're with where they're more kinesthetic and they, they need to feel 
but they're part mm. of it or or often I can read a body language and you can just about tell what the buyers are doing. I often would say, you know, if they're close to the idea, I might say, look, you're allowed to change your mind at one of my auctions or um, uh, giving them permission, giving them permission yeah, to change yeah. their mind. Um, what I'm trying to do is influence the situation because yeah. that's what selling is. Yeah. Um, with the Chinese buyers, I n- I've really made a note that, you know, rightly or wrongly, and this is not a racist comment, but you go to the casino right now, the jam full of Chinese mm. people, basically, and what they love to do is gamble. Mm. So at an auction, I actually bring that out and evoke that emotion by saying, "Hey, this is the one you want to win." Mm. At auction, winning's everything. Here's your big chance to win it. I'll use that kind of dialogue. Right. right. And so you're tapping into that loss aversion um, yes. as well. And, and that's one thing that Simon brought up from one of your lines was you don't want to wake up tomorrow and realise somebody else has bought your home. Mm. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Is that paraphrase or what are the exact words? Because it they're, looks like you use this a lot. Uh, they're about to buy your house. <laughs> what I might say, you know, yeah. they're about to buy your house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Listeners, listen to this. Yeah. You know, you've got to be very, very aware that the auctioneer, particularly someone like Tim, has invested an enormous amount of his own personal development and education and training and practice to get to a point where they are absolute experts at what they're doing. And as a buyer, you are not an expert buyer. You're mm. not. And a lot of buyers agents aren't either. Um, they should be listening to this because I've learned so much just from listening to auctioneers and I thought I was pretty clued up. So What I find is that... Um, Veronica, you get the CEOs in town, yes, right? And they come to one of the auctions and they're like, you know, cutting your hands because their body language gives it away. Yep. And they might, they might be that stereotype, the real red dominant kind of person. That's good for me at yeah, an auction. Yeah, bring it on. I, I love that. So that, that's in, in some respects. You need light and shade. So you've got to understand that what's happening as a buyer. So Quite often I employ my services as well to buy properties. Mm. And I say that's that's more stressful than ever auctioneering a property because mm. you've, got, you've got control as an the auctioneer. Mm. Yeah. And the unknown is when you're a buyer. Although yeah. there's less of that now. You know, it's more going the other way. And for mm. a smart buyer, and, and certainly I know the advantage we give our clients when we're bidding for them, is that the market is a buyer's market in Sydney. And so, therefore, we are able to we, – we read the situation. We've got a good understanding of what's been going on behind closed doors because obviously the agent has much more information than we do. But by reading certain things, we're doing the reverse now. Mm. So so there is an advantage for um, savvy buyers who have invested enough on the other side of the equation – one thing that you mentioned there, we call those sort of buyers, you know, the, the CEOs flexing their muscles and showing how alpha male they are, yeah. or female for that matter. Yes. Um, we call them testosterone bidders, yeah. you know, because they're really, they're all reared up and they're, and they're proving how good and successful they are and all the rest of it. But but as you say, light and shade, you might have a more of a timid bidder. Yeah. How do you not let that testosterone bidder squash the timid great, bidder? Great question. So some auctioneers, and I've seen it before at an auction where alpha male, say mm. might bid but they'll do a, a fairly big up bid or they'll start really high it's called a knockout bid mm. to deliberately knock someone out that isn't that confident yeah and so what auctioneers will do is just to help that alpha male they'll say something like you know whoa that's a knockout bid right <laughs> and so what that says naming it yeah is <laughs> to the under well uh, to the person that's a bit timid oh well i'm knocked out so I won't allow that to happen. Mm. It just goes off a water off a duck's back for me. Right. Well, I've already got that bid. I don't focus on that bid. I want the next bid. Right, right. So I'm working on the next one. So I might ask for a 
smaller increment to get someone in. Yeah. And so I, I might say, you know, wind it back a little bit, like, you know, don't, don't let, don't let them put you off. You mm. know, so um, you want it, you want to be involved in the auction. Don't, don't give that a chance here. It's unsocial. Just to let them buy it on one bid. Yeah. And you so mentioned um, there around the <laughs> using someone's name. I thought that was very interesting at the start. Potentially. I mean, and mm. it, I guess it's a bit of a fine line because everyone else hears that name. They're like, oh, they know that person. Why don't I know, you know, and why is he talking to me like that? So how do you use that carefully and how does it actually help? So it might be right at the end, so not initially. Okay. I'll never use it initially. And if I'm using names, I'll have to use everyone's name. So yeah. I've got mm. to know all of them rather than just one or two. Yeah. But, no, it's a good question because I think in auctioneer world, a bit of a no-no. But sometimes the things that can set you apart are different and you need to be, well, he knows the buyers. So that's, that's actually quite a good thing. So a potential vendor in the crowd will go, he really knew his stuff. He knew the people. So there was good empathy to the buyer, not just to the seller as well. I mean, it is a behavioural bias as well, right? Like, you know, one of you know, Stephen Covey's book, you know, if you say someone's name, you know, they're more likely to like you. And so, mm. you know, in that scenario there and people want to do business with people they like. So it's all these it just sounds like it's just a name, but I'm sure that it's just kicking off the elephant even more. Just well, actually, yeah, actually, maybe I do. Great agent to buy from. No, <laughs> uh, Chris, at an open for inspections, uh, at one of my open for inspections, if you come through one of my opens, I shake everyone's hand quite deliberately, and I use their name when I when I shake their hand. So at every open for inspection, I'll say, "How do you do? My name is Tim." I won't say Tim Heaviside because Heaviside's a bit of a funny name. So I just want people to remember the last thing I say, which is Tim. So how do you do? My name is Tim. And I extend my hand and they shake their hand. And they generally, I'd say 60, 70% of the time, they'll volunteer provide their name at that point. And then I'll use their name. So thanks, Veronica. And your surname, please. I'll just get to the next step. And I'll say your best phone number. And how did you know to attend the open for inspection today? And I'll register you into my open. And then I'll really work hard to get your partner's name if you're attending the Open, but I just want their first name. And so your first name, shake your hand. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Veronica. Please feel most welcome. Opening gesture, let the buyers come in. But more importantly, use their name as they're leaving. And they'll, they'll tend to remember you more. I've got listings from that, just from that yeah. basic skill. Mm. But you're right. It's often that's the the little things that matter the most. Mm. But I don't think remembering someone's name is a little thing. Mm. It shows care. Yep. It shows the right intent. It shows professionalism. Mm-hmm. I'm all about uh, professionalism, respect, and kindness. Mm-hmm. So that's how I operate. And you may, uh, a lot of what uh, Simon spoke about in the first podcast was scarcity and how do you manufacture scarcity. And you know, obviously in a market when it's booming and – you know, very few properties on the market. It's, it's easy to create it because it's like, well, you know, you've missed out at other ones and there's only one property on the market today and you need it. But how are you creating scarcity at the moment when there's more stock on the market? So about 18% of my properties now I'm selling prior to auction. So they're not getting to auction. So whereas beforehand, <laughs> only about 5% of stock was getting sold prior to auction. Mm-hmm. So I flipped the coin a little bit. So if there's, an, if there's a deal to be had, I've got four auctions tomorrow, but I've only got three to call. I've already sold one. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a growing trend because really for the whole campaign, we had three buyers through the campaign, one buyer, I go to that auction. I'm not going to, they're not going to either. Well, it's harder work for ver- you, isn't it? A lot harder work mm, and it may mm. not happen. Yeah. And, 
We've, we're, look, we've seen exactly the same thing. We've interviewed a lot of Sydney-based agents and we yeah. find exactly the same situation in Sydney. The good agents are, high, you know, identifying your strongest buyer or your only buyer in many cases. And and buyers need to be aware of this. This is actually what's happening as well. And so, you know, a buyer can use this to their advantage and actually say, no, 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 I'm happy to go to auction, which we do for our clients many times. No, no, no we, we're good, we're good, we're good. Now, some agents still force the hand because they manage to get someone to make an offer that the vendor will accept and then you've got no choice. Um, but it's very deliberate and it's a real change and it's a response to the market conditions. But you've got a job to do. You know, mm. like at the end of the day, I, I'm never going to have a go at an agent for doing it. I'm just having a go at buyers for not being aware of what's happening. Um, and that's that's what we're about achieving here. Do you think that, that buyer knew that they were the only buyer? Uh, they didn't feel like they were the only buyer. Okay. <laughs> yeah. They didn't feel. Um, I didn't perceive them or said I ne- never say that that wording. Yeah. But I would say, you know, if you if you're keen on the property, the best course of action for you to avoid further competition Saturday is for you to put your best foot forward and put in an offer. And sometimes getting that offer from the buyer is very difficult. So it's how you frame that conversation with the buyer. And I know this is more sales tactics than mm. auctioneering tactics, but it might be along the lines that, look, um, the buyer that, what I can tell you, Mr. Bo- I'll use you as a buyer, Chris. What I can say to you, Chris, is that the buyer that makes the play generally buys the property. So if you'd like to participate in the sale, now's your opportunity to put your best foot forward, put in an offer. We can see if we can tempt the vendor rather than going to auction. You might get more competition. The opportunity is now. So I think you should make the play by making the offer now. Mm. I mean, it makes sense, right? And if I was on that phone call, I'd be like, well, yeah, he's, he wants to make a deal. Uh, I want to make a deal. I want this property. Let's just get it done. But but it is playing on buyers' innate fear of auctions. Yeah. And the know? fear of loss because, yeah, you know, yeah. you've offered it. You've put yeah. a hand out there and I'm like saying, oh, no, no, Tim, I'll um I'll go to auction. It's pretty gutsy. And you do. You still, I mean, even as a buyer's agent. So I'm I'm doing it on behalf of my clients and I still have the elephant having the responses. Mm. I'm just aware of the responses and what's triggering them. Um, and so it's not my property that I'm – it's at stake and I'm being very careful not to risk my clients unnecessarily, but it's certainly – I still have the same emotional responses. So this is really powerful stuff. Now yeah, – I was going to say the amazing thing at auctions, I find it's like gambling mm. for a buyer and also for a vendor. No, let's roll the dice and let's see how I go on the on the auction day for both both sides. Yeah. It is incredible. Well, because there is a lot of luck involved, isn't mm. there? You know, and luck can go both ways. Yes. Um. You know that, that just someone and we joke about it, but people do sometimes go for a walk with their dogs and end up buying a house. You know, and and even in this market, believe it or not, it, it does happen on the odd occasion. And, and other times that you know the the sure thing buyer suddenly there's a new listing that comes on on the Thursday night, two days before the auction. And it's like, oh my god, that's even better. I'm dropping that one like a hotcake, and I'm running off of that. So there, there are the, the, those things you cannot predict and you can't control. So there is. I that find is true. buyers buying waves of emotion. Well, they, oh, I have to have this house. It's mine. It's going to be mine forever. Mm. And then I wake up the next day. I'm not sure about that one. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, I really right. loved it yesterday, <laughs> but now I'm not sure. And then the next day, oh no, it's I mine. I want it. I want it. And so you got to pounce on them at that yeah. point where they've, they've got the, I want to buy it, yeah. and then how do you keep them at that point? Sometimes as an agent you've got to recognise when the buyer's at that point and close. Mm. How, do you, um, <laughs> how are you managing a lot of vendors at the moment? Because, you know, a lot of problem with agents, you know, struggling to get the listing, behavioural bias for sellers is to go to the agent who's going to offer them, who gives them probably the highest number, right? Mm. Um, 
And then so they list it with the agent that promises them a very high number. But Potentially. Then, yeah, and that's just and generally it's, it happens. And then I guess in that scenario you've already promised or you've gave them an expectation of a number, but then when you go to the market it's now much lower. Are you finding that's a problem? And it, uh, yeah, it's, it's called overquoting. Yep. And there's a lot of a lot of stock or properties are overquoted, unfortunately. Mm. In a, when the market's depressing, it's going down, which it has in Melbourne, about 10%. Um, then that that is there's an indictment because uh, poor agents are looking at wrong data. Uh, mm. Vendors have got emotional figures around numbers that are probably there last year but not there this year. Um, and some are oblivious to the market. Some are really ignorant to the marketplace. Mm. Some are arrogant to the marketplace. Mm. Um, but the ones that are actually um, have got good agents that are providing sourcing the right information. And I think there's three there's three timelines of price one. At point of listing, two during the campaign, and the other is at point of sale, so that the vendor and the buyer is accurately getting those three mm. timelines right. Because you might see a property that's listed, and you think, "Nah, that's out of my price price range." I'll put a ruler through that, but then you'll see it sell for two or three hundred thousand dollars less. Yeah, mm. you think, "Oh, I missed that," you know, because you didn't yeah. put the right energy into it. Mm. Yeah. You thought, "Oh, well, I've just got to look past the price guide initially as a buyer." Exactly well, I mean, that's right. the same with underquoting, mm. right? Like, so if everyone's putting a figure 10, 15% under in the market, then every buyer goes, well, I'm not going to go and look at that one because it's going to go for 10, 15% above that, you know, based on all the other ones I've seen. So, you know, like. I think yeah. one of the big issues with underquoting, and we will talk about an elephant in the room regarding underquoting, but, but is the fact that not, and, and there's similar in, there's legislation in Victoria, there's legislation in New South Wales, and not all agents follow the legislation in the same way. Now, you tell me what's like down here, but in New South Wales, for instance, the agents have a choice. They can quote exactly what they put on the agency agreement, so from bottom to top and there's a 10% range. They can quote one figure and it could be anywhere in that range. Just pick a figure and just quote that. They can't quote something plus or offers over or anything like that any longer, or they can quote nothing and so that's assuming that they put the right amount on the agency agreement in the first place, so they didn't underquote or overquote on the agency agreement, but there's this enormous amount of variability within those three parameters that are legislated. And how do buyers work through that? So then you get a situation where one agent is a panic merchant and he's deliberately underquoting everything because he truly believes that nothing's, you know, the market's falling off a cliff and He's paranoid. He quotes everything really low in a suburb and then it's actually too low but he still believes it and his vendors are panicking as well. And then other properties in the same suburb are being quoted more accurately. So there's all of that going on. So uh -huh. it doesn't matter how much you legislate for this stuff or you, or you try to be really accurate with your data, you're then at the mercy of what other agents are doing and their practices, aren't you? I mean, and no one's got complete control over, say, one suburb and how it's being operated or how those agents are operating. Look, I keep a really tight stat, stat on how many houses there are at one at any one point in time in a suburb. So the areas that I deal in is in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. That that covers areas such as Surrey Hills, Montalbert, Camberwell, Canterbury, and the likes, Ball and Ball and North. That type. So at the moment, right as I'm talking to you, the most amount of homes currently in any one suburb is North Bourne. The Northbourne's getting hammered at the moment. Mm. So there's over there's somewhere Spot. between eighty to ninety houses wow. currently that you can pick from as a wow. buyer. Whereas comparing it to a neighbouring suburb such as Surrey Hills, 
there's only about 24 to 28 houses. Mm. So that variable is real. Yeah. So you might have um, properties that haven't sold at auction in Northbourne that just will, and then new properties come on the market. The, boy, the buyer's got all this <laughs> choice. Yeah, yeah. And so it keeps inflating the situation because last weekend we had about eight auctions uh, as in, in Northbourne, only one of those got sold. And then so more, mm. more and more and more happen. So um, that that's that's reality. What's in in that situation? So what's the difference between say North Auburn and Surrey Hills? Oh, what what type of stock? Um, what do you think's driving that? A lot of the, the actual prices were being driven up a little bit by international money or Chinese buyers, if you like, and that seems to have evaporated. Mm. So there's lots of reasons around that. But that was particularly around a school zone like the Bourne High School. And so a lot of Chinese buyers in particular were really ferocious. So prices spiked Mm. unnaturally compared to, say, the likes of Surrey Hills. So what's happened, we've had an adjustment because of that in Northbourne about 15%, whereas Surrey Hills only come off about 8%. It's really coming back to really where the local owner-occupier, where that sits. It's, It's like water. You swish it around in a bucket. And then if you let it go, it actually finds its own level. Mm. And that's the same thing with, with yeah. markets. It doesn't matter if it's if it's um, stock markets or real estate market, that, that they will find its own level. Yeah. It's natural. Mm. That's really interesting. That, And so uh, you said you had eight auctions in North Baldwin, one of which sold. You're still obviously recommending auction as a method of sale under those circumstances? Not always. So I, I believe that there are price bands on the internet that go up to $2 million. And then once you get over $2 million, there's $250,000 price bands online on the internet, on realestate.com and mm. domain, that type of thing. So pricing between $2 million to $2.5 million is very tricky mm. um, because what you said before about how Victoria, how we price things. So just to clarify that, so in Victoria, we're, we're only allowed to do one of two things. So it's called a statement of information. SOI, Statement of Information, every property in Victoria, if you look online, must, by law, have a Statement of Information link mm-hmm. online. So you click on the link, wow, brings up the Statement of Information, which provides three things. And this is entered by the agent? Yes. So this is much more transparent than New South Wales. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So you must have the median house price, the suburb. Um, you must have three comparable sales, if there are three comparables. Are there limits on that? No. Guidelines around that. See, there's, there, that's the weak point, isn't it? It is a weak mm. point. Unfortunately, we haven't mm. got great clarification from the government around that. And just from the listeners, it's for instance, you know, if, if you've got a double fronted freestanding house on 500 square meters, and all the comparables are in there, single fronted houses on 300 square meters, mm. and there's no guidelines from from in terms of what has to be put in there, or they're they're a year old, that, the that, sales are a year old. Um, you know, if there's no strict determination yeah. around that, then that, that is a weak point. There, there is guidelines mm. from the government, but those guidelines can be interpreted many ways. Yeah, okay. And if you can justify and tell me um, a direct comparable for a property, you'd argue points mm, about a okay, home. Yep. You might argue, well, it's four bedrooms, that was four bedrooms, yeah, but that was brick and that was weatherboard. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but they're selling at a similar price point. So buyers will be considering both homes. Mm. Yeah. So there's, there's lots of variables around that. Yeah. And elements that, that that probably you could justify, but that aside, so the three points again: one is yeah. the the median house mm-hmm. price; two, three comparable sales over the last six months mm-hmm. um, within a radius of two kilometres. Right. 
And the third thing is either a 10% range, like 1 million to 1.1, or you can have a single figure of 1 million. Now, the thing is, this is where it gets a little tricky, and I don't want to lose anyone here. Um, you've got an estimated sale, estimated sale price, estimated sale price, then you've got an indicative sale price. So <laughs> this is where I'll give you a real good yeah. example of this. So on the weekend, I had a property in East Hawthorne that I auctioned, and myself and my colleague, we had on our on our uh, section 47A, which is on our authority, price guide to the to the owner of 2 million to 2.2. 10%. That's my 10%. That's my estimate that I gave to the owner. Yep. Um, the owner, however, wanted more than that. They wanted somewhere between 2.2 to 2.4. So on the statement of information, we put 2.2 to 2.4. Mm. But our estimate to the owner still remained at 2 million to 2.2. Right. right. Okay. okay, so that's indicative because that's where the owner's at rather than estimate so we, based on what you, your yeah. advice is. So okay. we reflect what the owner wants, not not our estimate to the marketplace, okay? This is this can, is interesting because owners can change their mind too. They, it is. It's subject to change and mm. this is what buyers have to know. Mm. So we quoted 2.2 to 2.4 um, and it sold on the day through competition for $2,050,000. Right. So in our initial range, so the owner – didn't was comfortable to revise their their actual sale price on the day of the option, but sometimes they need their day in the court. And this yeah. is you know they need actually their their moment in the sun, yeah. a vendor yeah. or an owner. They, they need their auction yeah. to get the price right. And but why would an them. owner want to put a high price on it? You know because it doesn't really matter. Like why wouldn't the owner in that scenario just say, look, I think it's going to sell for two two to two point two, but really I want I want two point point four for it. It was like, a what? unique home. So it was no comparable sale for it. Right. But even if they do want 2.4, why wouldn't you just say, I want 2.2? And, um, yeah. Because owners don't understand. Yeah. They and don't again, really understand how it this all works. Is, this is the three price points. So at point of listing, during, mm. during the campaign, which I yep. provided lots of feedback around that, and then at point of sale. Mm. So it's the point of sale that the vendor got that price. Do you adjusted. think that they were trying to say 2.2 to 2.4 to manage your expectations and to say, look, I'm not going to sell this on the cheap. Um, I want you to work and get something in this it, range. It was a complicated sale in that um, it was a marital breaker mm. and there were circumstances that were beyond just normality. Got you. Yep. And the house itself needed a lot of work. Um, it was only 70% built. Thing. Wow. So it, it, was, it was complexities <laughs> there. Yeah. So mm. we got the right outcome and both vendors are very happy. Now, we'll go back to sort of the behavioural um, bias and, and effects during auction in a minute, but before we get back there, what do you think, you know, in the, under those circumstances where an owner has quite a high expectation and that impacts on your statement of advice for, um, or statement of information? Yes. And, and buyers are looking at that and they're going, oh, I wouldn't be interested because I'm not prepared to pay over 2.2. How many extra buyers do you think might have been interested mm. had they allowed you to put 2 to 2.2 on there, for instance? Yeah. Well, this is, this is the actual skill set of the, of the agent to get the price guide yeah. accurate mm. and keep reflecting because what the government's forced us as agents now to do is to be right on top of our pricing. Mm. So the, the days of set and forget are well and truly gone. <laughs> so every, every weekend, after every Saturday night, mm. I scour through all the suburbs that I'm selling in I'll look at what's selling to yeah. update my statement information right. regularly on the properties that we've got. That's good practice. Now, that's something you don't have to do, but 
good agents that are doing that mm. are also educating the buyers, educating their vendors, educating themselves. Yeah. And that's when you get the yeah, yeah. You can see that a lot in Sydney, price guide dropping down. Um, yeah, you know, before they would never have done that. You never get an email update saying, you know, we're going to readjust the price or anything like that. It's it's definitely a changing market. We say that to vendors at the start. Look, it's never set and forget. We will have to continue to talk about this through our journey of, of the sale process. And mm. also the, the same argument goes on the other extent with the buyer. We'll continue to keep you informed and we have a chat of the option, just about reflecting where the prices are now too. One of the things that Simon um, pulled out of your auction was this technique of anchoring. Mm. Yeah, so you're nodding, so I'm presuming you know exactly what he's referring to. Tell us about that. How, how do you use that during an auction? Yeah, so what, you, what we want to do is pivot in in some respects with a buyer. So you've got a buyer bidding at a certain price point and um, I, I make sort of anchor, anchoring statements. Um, and and also, um, oh, I just have to laugh because Simon picked the absolute right auction to go to, didn't he? Of all the <laughs> yeah. auctions that he could have gone to, he just wandered up the road and happened to yours. And you're so deliberate about this. Mm. So so sorry, I'm just I'm just enjoying this. This information is great. So thank you. And it might have been perhaps in an environment last year when the when there were more bidders. It was. It was. Um, we actually yeah. interviewed him last night, November, October. I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I think back then, you know, regularly we were seeing bidders still three, four, five bidders. Yeah. Sometimes seven. But at the moment, those days are gone. Yeah. But you won. Yeah. So you said back to anchoring. Yeah, so, yeah. yes. So tell us about that. So you, you want to make sure with a, with a buyer, they're actually framing in their mind it's the right property. Mm. So you're anchoring in, them into the home. So it's just no different than, say, if you're out on a boat and uh, you get to a point in the ocean where you don't want to drift anymore, so you put down an anchor. Mm. So it pivots you to that point. Mm. And so at, at the auction, uh, you want to make sure that that buyer's wedded into the auction, so emotionally. Um, and this is getting into the psyche of the buyer and, mm. and talking about language and the skill set as the auctioneer, use certain dialogue yep. to ensure that they, that they are committed to the property. Yeah, and I think another thing that Simon was talking about is that what an anchoring bias can do is it doesn't have to be a it can just be a random number, right? So, you know, I think very early on in mm. that auction, I think you said, Oh, we're thinking something around two to two point five for this this, yeah. this place. Now, it could be worth a million, it could be worth two million, but just that high number yeah. starts getting people thinking two point five million draws and it draws them. Let let me explain something. Mm. The pencil you've got in your hand here. By, you know, people can't see in this no. podcast. <laughs> there is a pencil. But it, it's a HP pencil, all right? Mm. And I don't know, that would be worth, I guess, 50 cents at best, bought in bulk. But I'm going to make it sound like five bucks. So, right. so the pencil, that is yeah, and this bucks. is this is an anchor. <laughs> yep. So we, we've been selling these pencil, pencils, okay, up to and around $10, $20, sometimes $50 a pencil. But right now... <laughs> Okay, let's start, say, around $5. $5 sound okay? So I've anchored up $10, yeah, exactly. $20, uh, $50. Yes, of course, yeah. And so you're already thinking that high. Gee, and then you're relieved. you're relieved that he only wants five. Yeah, oh, five yeah. sounds like a bargain. Mm, yeah. So when at the start of the on- at the start of my auction, I might say we've been seeing sales in the area selling $800, $900, dollars certainly well beyond. Who, where, would I, like, where would you like to see a fair and reasonable start? Who'd like to kick the ball into play 
that kind of thing. Mm. And then people already think, oh, well, gee, there's been sales around 1.2 and he asked for 800,000. That seems reasonable. And again, it's getting the commitment from the buyer. That's what I'm after. So yeah. some of these other biases that you consciously are aware of that could you give us some examples of others? Um, there's lots of little phrases and sayings and things like that during an auction, but I always think if you could think like you are the buyer bidding at the property, it's often very good. Um, I try to um, encourage buyers by being very emotive. So one of my auctions last weekend, I'm just driving the auction, I just sort of think of these things. So I try, I'm always testing things out whether or not they work. Mm. And I, I had a, um, a two-bedroom plus study single-level villa unit that attracted a lot of downsizers. Mm-hmm. It's one of four in the complex. And um, I was driving there and I had a lot of buyers who liked it, but it didn't have a three-bedroom. And they liked it and it was one one bathroom off the off the on off the ensuite. It's a semi ensuite effect, but it had two two toilets. But what a lot of the buyers wanting is a specific three bedroom, two bathroom. Whereas this one's a two and a study, one bathroom plus a powder room. So it wasn't the perfect, and I know that from the buyers. So when I drove to the property, I was thinking about that. So when I got up to do the preamble, and I said, "Who here knows the story of Goldilocks?" And three bears. So in the story, <laughs> right, and people are laughing like that. And I thought, what's he going to say now? Yeah, exactly. so I love it. I said, look, in the story in Goldilocks and the three bears, so it had, you know, Goldilocks sat on a chair, one was too hard, one was too soft, one was just right. Did the same thing with the bed and the porridge, one was too hot, one was too cold, and one porridge was just right. So with this property, and you might have been looking for three bedroom, two bathroom, villa units, that type of thing. This one, it's just right. Ooh. Oh, wow. And so that, that that's sort of put they're all into nodding. their mind. Yeah. And <laughs> and as a as an auctioneer, you nod. I nod mm-hmm. all the time and consistently nodding. And even when I'm asking for that next bid, go another five. Come with me for five. And you nod like that. People, you know, they nod back. Well, Damien like Cooley said that in, yeah. in episode two. You know, that that exactly that, that that's what he does. And mm. you know, and it's it's a we're all infectious, mirror, mirroring, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 You mentioned that. So there's another behavioural bias, which is basically language. And so when you were t- talking about that pen, just thing, talking about it's a HP pen, right? You started to describe the pen. Mm. Is it, you know, if you're like, for example, going to buy a bottle of wine and it's just, it's a red Savon Blanc, right? Find a red Savon Blanc. Mm, that'd you be know, that sounds very nice. <laughs> you know, but you know, you're with me. White. But if it's yeah, a yeah, no, Savon Blanc yeah. and it's from the Barossa yes. and it's a 2014 vintage and mm. it's from these grapes, um, we start to attach, because of all that language, we start to attach more value to it. Yeah. And so it's the same with the property, I imagine. How do you use language so in our auctions? There's a saying, facts, facts tell, stories sell. Mm. Yeah, facts yeah. tell, stories sell. So if you can bring things out on the story, that's when you get the best traction. Traction's everything in real estate, particularly in auctions. That's momentum. Mm. So, you know, during the auction, you might have said that about God, as in this home's just right. And then you might then bring it back in again in the bidding sequence. I'll remind you, this one's just right. So don't go back on your phone on, on Saturday night after you've missed this one and then you're looking through realestate.com or domain Fingers going up and down on your screen, mm. and you think to yourself, "Why didn't I get that property in Druitt Street in Blackwood?" 
So oh, let's not have that. Emotive, isn't it? Because mm. you're really getting them. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what I do. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's Talking me. about me. Yeah, you're in the head. Mm. And rather than saying, yep, oh, you'll be back on, you'll be back on the internet tonight, you know, really put the story in the head how they're going to be back and why they should have bid that one. So that, that's where I think you get a big distinction between just an average agent or just an average, I'm not saying I'm the best. I'm just saying that's that's what I've learned. You do. Yeah. There's also, and you mentioned earlier, momentum is so important in auctions. And um, you know, talking too much or not talking enough can actually sort of either sort of stuff it up, really, can't it? Um, particularly in a slow market, I mean, what sort of techniques do you use to create momentum or urgency yeah. during an auction? Uh, well, what we said before about quick but buy a house, mm. so that that can be the be the way. Often um, using the the clothes, so that's all of the hammer, so one, two, yeah. three, and, and threatening with the you hammer a little gavel? bit. You have a gavel? Yeah, I have yeah. a hammer. Mm. Mm, okay. Silver one. And uh, oh, very, using, no, nice. using, <laughs> using the hammer uh, is, is quite important. And, you know, it looks like getting your contract out and, and using dialogue, dialogue like, you know, my instructions are clear. Mm. And, you know, first, second, third time. And, you know, I, I'm very theatrical. About the, my heart fingers rate going. and yeah. yeah, people's heart rate does go up mm. and, and and blood pressure, uh, and you want to make it so that they are feeling like well, I've, I've got to act now. I've had a couple of scenarios in my my um, duration of being an auctioneer. I've had a couple of people faint. Mm. You know, <laughs> after the auction, hard, I've yeah. knocked it down to them, and bang, they've gone down. It's wow. terrible. Mm. You know, yeah, I've um, never seen that. But there you go. Mm. Do you ever pick favourites? Because you know. I kind of have a set, I belief that sometimes people do. You know, you like working with people, then, you know, if they work respectful to you and they, they get along and there's good rapport, do you think that that ever plays into you, your subconscious and your the way that you handle the auction and sometimes it affects you that you might potentially sell the property like more than another? Mm. Um, never is the answer. I, I do like buyers, more mm. buyers than others. Mm. That's natural, but it's a professional conduct mm. and you're out to get the vendor the best price. So sometimes like even my, my in-laws sold that. There was a nice nice young couple that would have been nice for them to get it. My sort of in-law mm. would have loved for them to got it, mm. but the highest bidder got it. Yeah. And I wasn't favouring anybody. I never have. I never will. Mm. Um, you're out to get the best outcome for the – but I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um, it's just a natural reaction. Yeah. And uh, it's a um, – Sometimes it can be an indictment to our industry, but sometimes the um, from a vendor's perspective, and Jason, the auctioneer, taught me this a long time ago. But we tend to favour the pricks in terms. Of, sorry about the language no, no. from a vendor's perspective, because mm. the the pricks tend to be well. I'll tell you what, heavy side, you don't get me one point two million. I'm not going to sell it. Yeah. So what happens? You go out there and call the auction, and you've got competitive bidding, um, and you don't know this one point two million until like just two seconds before the mm. auction, mm. <laughs> and bang! I'm calling the auction. I've got competitive bidding at one million dollars. We're not having the property on the market, and then what happens? Mm. We pass the property in. We get the the highest bidder who's offered a million dollars inside. They go up to one point one million, and then the, the nasty vendor. Mm. Um, they they go well reluctantly. I'll sell for one point one million. Whereas if I had a, a kind, nice vendor, mm. and we had bidding at around a million dollars, they might have leased the property, put it on the market, 
cutting it up. And then it sells for one million and five, one million yeah. and ten. Yeah. And we sell that price. So sometimes that happens. Look, it does, but not all the time, does no. it? Because there's plenty of times when those prick vendors, as you yeah. call them, you know, at the end of the day, they push you too hard and the buyer's not there. Mm. You know, the market's not there, the buyer's not there, and, and they end up giving it to another agent. <laughs> plenty, plenty of times that happens. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say it can favour mm. can favour them. It's delicate. Oh, it's a balance. It's very delicate. Now, and just with um, you know, you've got young, sometimes old, inexperienced bidders. Doesn't really matter what age you are, really, and how many properties you bought. And market's always changing, so as a bidding at auctions, always got to change. You know, is it if you said like you know you had ten auctions, you know, how common is it that you find that the underbidder, you know, a had more in the tank, but got scared mm. or just gave up. Or just thought this is pointless, or whatever it is. Some reason stopped them bidding, but they still, and they probably should have won the property. Is mm. that something you see? How common do you think it is? Yeah, I had it um, last, not last Saturday, the Saturday before, where you know, I passed the property in at one million one hundred and fifty, and there was a buyer there um, post auction who didn't engage. They didn't feel comfortable though, um, and then they they put in an offer of one point one. So passed in at one million one hundred and fifty to a vendor bid. Post auction, uh, scouring around the crowd, there was a lady who put in an offer uh, to the vendor one point one million, and I said, "Look, that's not going to buy it. One point two, which is I was quoting one two to one three, um, and uh, so one point one is not going to be enough. One point two will buy it." Um, and she said, "No, no, I'm going to regret putting that offer now." Um, because I feel as though I'm being a bit rushed. And I said, well, this is your third inspection of the property. <laughs> um, what what will you need to do to don't feel rushed? He said, I'll need to talk to my daughter who's away at the moment. She's in the state, blah, blah, blah. Roadblocks. Um, so but all I heard was roadblocks, you know, mm. that she was putting up excuses. So I said, look, would you like me to keep you informed? But it's the buyer that makes the, the, the offer, makes the, generally gets the play. It's something that's reasonable or reasonably close to 1.2. Anyway, that night... I got another offer from another buyer that we rung around and it was about 9 o'clock at night and I got an offer of 1170000 in writing. It's not quite 1.2. I rang, close though then, isn't it? Yeah, I rang that buyer who mm. put in the, the verbal offer of 1.1 on the day and um, she didn't feel comfortable to, to bid. I said, were well, you going to regret this? She said, no. Anyway, she missed out and she rang me on, then on the Monday and she said, oh, um, what, about, what else have you got like that property? And I said, well, there isn't anything else. Um, do you regret not buying it now? He said, oh, yeah, I regret it. Mm. So what's going to happen, say, this weekend or next weekend, that you're going to fall in that same trap? And so there's, there is a saying, and it's unfortunate, but that lady, she's going to go in the same path again. She, she's very indecisive. Mm. She, can't, she can't make a decision. Or the opposite, yeah. though, right, because the, after you've actually lost something, it's quite painful. She's mm. phys- feel, physically and mentally feeling pain. That experience, yeah, she'll probably react either two ways. One, the next auction, she'll just buy something potentially, you yes. know, and yeah. she'll overpay and yeah. she'll just get it because you know she's missed out. Mm. Or you're right, or she'll just, or maybe she and she yeah. may even, mm. yeah, that's the other thing. She might not even buy and she might even go out of the market because she was so traumatized. I've actually had a client, um, <laughs> that's the story they've told me recently. You know, mm. they went to an auction, um, it was so horrible that they didn't really want to go into the market again. They were like mm. felt like they were getting bullied and that oh, watching the other people get at the auction and it was really interesting because they were mm. they, they, they're first home buyers, right? They have confidence levels very low and then you go to mm. a traumatic auction experience and like 
So on that, as an auctioneer, um, quite often I'll I'll use the the framework uh, to, to say out of ten, what is this rate? Mm. So I'll say um, we don't sell nine or ten out of ten homes. They generally don't exist, or they're not in your price point. Mm. Um, but if this if this home is three or four out of ten, please don't buy it. That's right. I said don't buy it yeah. if it's three or four out of ten. Mm. But if it's seven or eight out of ten, these are the ones to buy. So if this is seven or eight out of ten, now's the opportunity to gander. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Tim, give us an example of a property dumbo. We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Often I think the, the easiest one to reference out in my mind is someone that's a, a main road and you've advertised the address of the property and they turn up to the home and they go, you know what, it's a main road. Well, how did you get here? It's so true. God. How did you get here? Yeah. You know, Can like, you read it? Can you notice that before you even got in the car? Yeah. yeah. So uh, I find that. You know, infuriating. A little bit. Yeah. You know, you know. I've, well, it's kind of just calling and, the, the the obvious, and you're like, well. Yeah, but again, as a salesperson, of course, you don't go. You can't well, go, you, you idiot. You idiot. Of course, no, I, don't, I never. I say, look, well, did you know that forty uh, percent of all homes are on main roads, and it's priced, it's priced accordingly. Uh, so that's okay. You can you can buy. It's a very convenient spot here. Yeah, well, actually, I love it. Is that actually a true right stat? Right. Is it forty percent of roads? Yes. Really? Okay. Yeah, think wow. about it. Yeah. It does that include units though, because a lot of units are built on main roads, so yeah. there'd be a lot of dwellings in a oh, unit. There yeah, you yeah. go. Mm. Where's the stat from? Come on, source. <laughs> uh, it's a lot. It's been around for a long time. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, there you go. So yeah. any others? Come on, give us another Dumbo. That's, well. a, that's a good one. We just saw this. That's a good one. Or, you know, it might be, well, it's only got two bedrooms. Yeah, well, that's right. We've only got two bedrooms, but... And, and it's often some that there's a dumb comment because they want four bedrooms and it's two bedrooms. Well, yeah, on the floor plan, it hasn't changed since yeah. on the internet. Why are you here? So, but but I, could, I, I reference back to them and push back on that and say, look, if you bought it then, how would you modify the house? Oh, see, there's a Tim Heaviside response to a silly, silly comment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you ever sold a two-bedroom house to somebody who was out looking for a four-bedroom house? Yeah, I've sold a... My bedroom house for a very old couple who I thought way over. Couldn't believe they needed five bedrooms. Were they downsizing for something? They, were, they were about 90. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, why do you need this size house? And they said, look, it's just perfect for us. We've, you know, we've, we've got a lot of stuff. Okay. You, ne- you can never prejudge anybody. No. That's what I've learned. Mm. Assumptions never a good idea in anything. Definitely not in property as well. Quite often the people with the money <laughs> least look like they have it. Look, look like they have it the least. Better way to say it. Now, this is the elephant in the room and I have to ask about an elephant, right, Tim, and you're probably wondering if you're going to ask this question, but one of your awards has been for getting the highest or the largest fine. Mm. And I'm not. I wouldn't say award. No, no, no. Yeah. Anyway, I look, it's a, it's a record, shall we say. Um. What's happened? I mean, I, I can tell you all across the, the legislation, all across underquoting, just for the listeners, this was for underquoting, and I, I'm not here to stitch you up at all because I recognise as a previous sales agent myself and also as a, as a buyer's agent that underquoting is a very complex issue and buyers play their part in this. 
you know, so so I'm not mm. around, uh, you know, trying to sit you up. But I would be interested to know, you know, very high profile um, case and, you know, it wouldn't have been very pleasant for you, I'm sure, when this is all going on. What what have you learnt from that, I guess? And, you know, what would you like, what's changed? Mm. Oh, well, it's, it's quite... You know, I'm openly saying it did happen um, mm. and we did get fined and, and uh, it was an indictment not only to our company but the industry. Yeah. So uh, there were a lot of um, – that was just known as general practice. Mm. So um, a lot of people really don't understand what it is. No. So what happens is, as an example, you might, you know, give your estimate to an owner of, say, a million dollars on a yep. house but then quote – back then we were allowed to say plus yep. and we will quote 800 plus. Mm. And uh, unfortunately – um, that was known as general practice and yep. agents, including Fletcher's, yep. um, were actually fined by the government for those practices. And this is back uh, 2014-15. Yeah. We yep. were actually filming. So we did a couple of episodes down in Melbourne and I remember at the time, a little bit before then, probably 12, 13, 14, mm. and I remember thinking at the time, oh, my God, the underquoting is bad in Sydney but it's even no. worse here yeah. in the sense that, Every single property you went to, you really had to add about twenty percent. Um, in the in the real height of it, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, we bought yeah. something in two thousand sixteen, and yeah. every, and it was ten to fifteen percent yeah. outfail every single property, no matter what agent you went to. Yeah, that's yeah. the point. It was yeah. every single agent, yeah. so yeah. therefore mm. you can't be the one that's you know. Anyway, so back to your story. Sorry, oh, but I mean, do you do you feel? I guess just out of curiosity, yeah. do you feel like you're the one who just took the hit? You were the kind of guy that's got the short straw mm. when everyone was. No, not it. at all. I mean, well, there were a lot of companies that did get fined. Mm. Right, so okay. There were a lot. Um, we got the record fine. Yeah. yeah. I think we were targeted because we were a large organisation. And, yeah. And um, and is it because look, you called the um, the regulators a toothless tiger? Tooth, yeah, that, that probably didn't help. <laughs> didn't help. But, um, but I said it sounds like they were a toothless tiger. But right. It sounds like. I never said. Anyway, but that, yeah. that's what I did. I did say that. Mm. Um, yeah. Sounds like, they sound like the regulators are toothless tigers, but. Back then, nothing was happening. Yeah, and so they they have taken action now. Mm. We've certainly um, reinforced those practices in our business. We're a much better company for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've got great compliance program in place, so mm. it'll never ever happen again. Yeah. Um. I, certainly, I'm, I'm got my director's hat on, uh, and I, I feel it's a lot better that the industry's cleaned up, prices are quoted accurately. Mm. But the, the the issue that I find is not underquoting. Anymore, of course, over-quoting. it's overquoting. But I don't know if the government really got that right in the legislation to work out when the when the market turns. Well, see, yeah, that, yeah, and that's a and, good point because the thing is that when you got overquoting, it's the vendors that suffer, not mm. the buyers. But you know, no one's screaming overquoting, overquoting. You know, and and it is, you know, a lot of understand. And this is one part of the, the reason for this podcast is really to explain this more robustly so that buyers out there can understand really what's going on mm. and it is important and certainly as a buyer's agent I see opportunity in those properties that I overquoted bring it on especially in the current market but yeah. even in, even in a hot market yeah an overquoted property is not going to get competition mm. that an underquoted which is clearly why underquoting was so prevalent but but an accurately quoted property I guess the hard the hard part with underquoting is just the journey that someone who hasn't is not using a buyer's agent hasn't bought before yeah and they don't even know they're on real estate or comedy or domain that there's a sold tab and they haven't really figured out the market pricing. Mm. They rock up at the first open home. They say, yeah, we're expecting something around 1 to 1.1. They've got a budget. They can afford a million dollars. Everyone wants what they can't afford. 
And so then they go, oh, they're up to the auction. They get all their building and pests done. Get all ready. Opening bid, million and fifty. Oh, okay. I'm and sunk, yeah. Then they, they think that that was just a one-off. And then so they go to the next auction next weekend. And then by the time they've done that, they've probably wasted three to six months. to. And then they've gone. Then they go to the next suburb. And the next suburb has also gone up. And then mm. they chase the market. And so mm. just the underquoting, it's just they don't really know where to shop because they yeah, don't know what initially. they can actually afford. Yeah. And um, it takes it's they get a few bruises along the way because, they, you know, it's quite frustrating. I guess that's where the, the, the thing that wasn't ever really put out there properly. Most uh, most decent agents anyway were were really explaining a lot of these things to buyers. Mm. You know, how long have you been looking in the marketplace? So um, what have you what have you missed out on recently? And and had a pretty honest and frank conversation with a buyer. Mm. A lot a lot of that wasn't really talked about okay. much. Or well, because at the end of the day, you've still got to get buyers in the right frame of mind. Mm. It's not just purely just chucking fuel on a fire and yeah. hoping that one of them actually pays enough. It, it yeah. is actually making sure it's pitched correctly. Yes. And then and obviously as a selling agent, you've got to factor in. You've got to anticipate what buyers are adding to what you're quoting. And so if the whole market's under-quoting, then you've got to anticipate that addition that every buyer, and you see it, the, the pip, yeah. right on forums, you know, I add 10% to everything, I add 150 grand to everything or whatever it was. And I'm and I'm been often saying, or many times I've said, don't have a blanket mm. um, figure that you add to whatever the agents are quoting because the agents are different, they quote differently, sometimes they get it wrong, and uh, you're responsible yourself. Yeah. This is a massive big decision, people. Take responsibility for your own research and understanding what it is you're about to buy. Yeah, but I, look, I'm I'm all for the new legislation changes mm. through CAV. That's yeah. Uh, so you do have that range, and it's what you quoted to the owner is what yep. you have to quote to buyers. Yeah, yeah. Now that was that was failing to happen prior to May first, two thousand and seven. That's when the new legislation changed. So um, it's all for the better. We're supportive of it. We've embraced it, and we're. Um, I, I I believe, as an agent, um, and also, I guess as a, one of the leaders in the industry, that it is definitely changed our industry for the better, yeah. not for the worse. That's good, and I think that statement of information that mm. that is then publicly available means that actually everyone does get access to the same information. I think that's it's really a good important. record. Yeah, at all, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's been brilliant, Tim. I really appreciate you taking some time and um, yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. Right. And how do we hear about you, I guess? Oh, yes. So, Tim, just for our listeners, how if they want to get in touch with you, how would they find you? So my mobile number is 0403 020404. Uh, my email address is tim.heavyside at I'm based out of the Canterbury office, but we've actually got 20 offices now. So. Ooh. Um, update my intro. That's okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Eastern Suburbs, uh, in Heaviside, Fletcher's Real Estate, Canterbury. And we'll put the link in the show notes so people can get hold of you if they'd like to. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tim. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Well, after having a great uh, interview there with Tim Heaviside, I think what can we do but better train our listeners 
and prepare you for auction, actually going to auction. So certainly one thing that you could clearly hear from Tim is that when you're dealing with uh, an experienced and, and practiced and very deliberate auctioneer like Tim, you're up against it. So you really do need to be thoroughly prepared before you go to the auction. Now, often we talk about the fact you've got to know your upper limit and pressure test that upper limit and and really be very, very clear on that and be prepared to walk away at anything over that upper limit before you get to the auction. So that's something that I talk about a lot. I've got a lot of videos about that as well, and I might even post one. But the other side of that is how important is this property to you? And really quite be very, very clear and deliberate about that. And, and Tim did mention something that he was uh, using sort of a, a, a score out of 10, I guess. If you're really clear on how uniquely this property suits your needs and you've got that clear walkaway price in your mind, you're much less likely to be swayed by, you know, a clever auctioneer or by fear of what other buyers are doing. You're much more likely to be able to play your own game and be very, very deliberate in what you do. Okay. So just remember that, that being prepared before you go to auction is 100% important in order to A, avoid you missing out on the property unnecessarily, B, avoid you overpaying for the property unnecessarily, and C, avoid you not participating when you really should participate. Tune in next week when we interview property forecaster Frank Gelber. Uh, Frank is the director of BIS at Oxford Economics. In particular, Frank is an expert in cycles, in property cycles. So we talked about the length of cycles. We talked about the way investors, whether they be individuals or corporates, need to understand their goals, the life cycle of their investments, the stage of investment, and also how to read the cycle so they get in and get out at the right times in order to maximise their returns. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.